Well, Father, we thank you for this evening. Thank you for these men. Uh, thank you for the opportunity to be here. And Lord, we're grateful. And I pray that tonight as we unpack this passage that it would be um, meaningful to every guy in the room, myself included, uh, that Father, you would speak to us through your Holy Spirit and apply these words to our lives. Help us never to forget that these words came directly from the mouth of Jesus Christ. And that, Father, they have weight. They have impact. They're not to be taken lightly. They're not to be taken for granted. And I just pray, Father, that um, as we've tried to do the last two weeks, help us to put aside all our preconceived ideas, what we think we uh, know about these passages, and, and just let you speak to us and let us hear, maybe for the first time, what it is you're trying to say to us. And then help us to apply it to our lives so that it can change our lives from the inside out. We give you this time together, and we pray all this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so what we're going to do is we're going to read uh, these first 15 verses, and then we'll kind of take a look at them. There's really two, two parts to this uh, section, these 15 verses. Um, one you're going to be more familiar with than the other, because the second part is the uh, Lord's Prayer. And we're going to kind of unpack that a little bit. But we're going to start at verse 1 of chapter 6. Remember, try as best you can... Get in the mindset of a first century Jew standing on that hillside listening to Jesus speak and try to hear it from that perspective. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Don't be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So there's a, there's a lot in these 15 verses. And they, they follow on the heels of what we uh, finished with last week. And I want to go back and look at the last verse of chapter 5 because it was one of those bricks to the forehead verses. If you're standing there in the audience and you're a Jew and you hear Jesus say this, you therefore must be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. That was a shocking statement to hear. And it went right along with the one he said earlier in chapter 5, which is what? Your righteousness has to be better than that of the Pharisees. So two times in the early portion of his message, he said some things that I think got the ears up of the 
Jews, especially the, the lower class peasants, but I think it also got the attention of the Pharisees because they were sharp enough to know that what he was saying was not exactly a compliment to them. But he says this, you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And what he's going to get into right now, I, I believe, is kind of an illustration of what he means by that. Because we have a problem as 21st century Christians, just like they had as 1st century Jews, and it's a problem with perfection. Confusing what perfection looks like, and especially what does God's idea of perfection look like? What does he want? And we confuse it with man's perfection what we think it ought to look like. And Jesus is going to clarify what he's talking about, that his idea of perfection is not their idea of perfection. And what we're always tempted to do is kind of lower the, lower the curve, you know, lower the standard and say, well, you know, God doesn't expect that. He's okay with this. And we lower the standard. And if you're like me, if, if you're struggling with how you're doing, maybe spiritually, you can always find somebody who's not doing half as well as you are. And you kind of look for those guys, right? The, the losers, the spiritual losers, who you just look at them and go, man, that guy doesn't have a clue. I at least have a clue. And so that's what we do. We lower the standard and say, well, I'm better than that person or I'm better than this person. And Jesus isn't going to allow us to do that. And he's going to talk about this issue that we touched on last week or that he touched on in his message, the idea of internal piety versus external piety. Internal righteousness versus external. And again, the risk we always run as Christians is to focus on the external, the behavior, what people see, but we don't work on internal holiness. And that's what God looks at, right? God looks at the heart. God's always looking at your heart. And God sees things about your heart that you don't even see. That's why David prayed, you know, Lord, show me my heart. Show me if there's any wicked way in me. Because David knew he didn't know his heart as well as God did. We can fool ourselves. We can actually convince ourselves that we, we're better than we are. And so this issue that we just read in these first verses about the praise of men. Jesus is going to hammer this home pretty, pretty hard. And I, I think the praise of men is something we all like. We all want it, right? We, we want to be praised by our boss. We want to be praised by our wife. We want our kids to praise us. We want people to say good things about us. And there's nothing, you know, innately wrong about that, but in, in the Jewish context, in their kind of a economy of spiritual things, the praise of men was very important. And Jesus is trying to reveal that the Pharisees had made it almost a, a, a contact sport. Getting the praise of men, getting people to say great things about them, appearing as righteous. And we've read some things already where Jesus says, woe to you, Pharisees, hypocrites, because you want to appear one way, but you're not really the way you need to be on the inside. And that's really what he's going to unpack in these verses. The idea of seeking the praise of men. So he says, beware of practicing your righteousness, and that's important. Because he doesn't say, beware of practicing God's righteousness. He doesn't say, beware of practicing righteousness. He says, beware of practicing your righteousness. And I think there's a purpose in the wording because I think Jesus is trying to get them to understand there's two kinds of righteousness. There's your righteousness, and then there's Christ's righteousness. Remember, we looked at that quote from Martin Luther, and he says that there's a 
alien righteousness that we all need in order to be made right with God. We can't manufacture it. It's outside of ourselves. It can only come from Jesus Christ. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. Don't practice your righteousness in front of men to be what? In order to be seen by them. Because you will get no reward from your Father in heaven. And again, that, I think, hit them harder than it tends to hit us. Because, see, we live this side of the cross, and we sit there and go, well, I'm already going to heaven. Who cares? I've already got my reward. Uh, you know, who cares if his house is bigger than my house? I'm going to be there. It doesn't matter. But that's not the point. And, and the real point for these Jews, pre-cross, pre-death of Christ, pre-resurrection, is the idea of, but I want a reward from God. I, I, I want to be blessed by God. I, I want God's favor. Remember, this whole thing is about God's approval of you. How do you get God's approval? And so he says, if you're going to practice it to get men's attention, to get their reward, to get their praise, pat on the back, way to go, you're a great guy, you're a wonderful Christian, you'll get your reward. You're just not going to get the reward you're looking for, the reward, the approval of God. So he uses this word beware, and it's a favorite word, it seems, of Jesus because he used it quite a bit. And in the Greek, it means literally beware, but kind of like take heed, watch out, be careful. Wake up and smell the coffee. You got to look at what's going on here. It's a warning. And, and he, Jesus loved to use this word, and he used it in a lot of different contexts. In chapter 7, we'll see, he says, beware of false prophets. Watch out, be careful, be on the lookout who come disguised as harmless sheep but are really vicious wolves. He goes on in chapter 10, but beware for you will be handed over to the courts and will be flogged with whips in the synagogues. This is Jesus talking to the disciples and he's warning them about things that are going to come to them once he leaves. Once the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost and they get filled with the Spirit and they go out and start changing the world, he says, beware, watch out, this is going to happen. He's not telling them you're going to escape it. He's just saying, be on the alert. When you start speaking for me and you start going out on my behalf, you will face difficult times. He goes on in chapter 16 of Matthew. Watch out, Jesus warned them. Beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Keep your eyes open. Look at these guys. And I think part of what Jesus was doing all throughout his ministry with those 12 disciples was trying to get them to see the reality of the Pharisees and their leadership style. And he was always exposing them. And that's why he was willing to dialogue with them and debate with them and let them come up and test him because the disciples were always sitting there watching this. And he's always saying, watch out, beware. Look at these guys. Look at their hearts. Look at the inside. Don't be enamored with the outside. Do not be like these guys. Beware. Then finally in Luke chapter 20, we see, Beware of these teachers of religious law. They like to parade around in flowing robes and love to receive respectful greetings as they walk in the marketplaces and how they love the seats of honor in the synagogues and the head table at banquets. Now keep in mind, when Jesus said this, guess who's in the hearing of what he just said? The Pharisees and religious leaders. And again, Jesus did not care if they liked him. He didn't, he wasn't politically correct. He didn't really care if they, you know, man, Jesus, he, he's, he's really a sharp guy. This did not win any friends among the Pharisees, right? Any more than it would win friends among us if I said this about you. 
But see what he says? They, they love what? They love to walk around in the marketplaces with their flowing robes. They love to receive respectful greetings and people kind of kowtow to them. And Jesus is telling us in this passage, don't buy into that. Don't mimic that kind of righteousness. As a matter of fact, beware of it. So we saw in the last verse of chapter 5, he's telling us what? To be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. He's telling you to do something, be something, be perfect. And then he's going to tell us here, be careful. So two things he's kind of warning us about. And again, who's he speaking to? Yes, he's speaking to a group of people standing on a hillside in Galilee more than 2,000 years ago, but he's also speaking to us because he's really speaking to believers, those in the crowd who are going to become believers, the disciples who are going to become believers, but he's most definitely speaking to you and I who are believers, those of us in this room who've placed our faith in Christ. And he's telling us, You've got to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, and you need to be careful. And those two things go hand in hand. Because guess what? You can't be perfect like your heavenly Father is perfect if you're going to try to be perfect like the Pharisees are perfect. You can't use their perfection and put it up against Jesus' perfection or his definition of perfection, which is God and holiness and righteousness. You can't have both. And that's what I think he's trying to warn them and try to warn us. And early on when we started in the, the Beatitudes in chapter 5, I gave you this definition of blessed, meaning approved by God. And one of the guys came up uh, right before we started and said, hey, I looked it up in Strong's. I went to Logos Bible software and, and it, it doesn't say approved by God. And no, it doesn't. Because where that comes from is if you... Anytime you study the, the scriptures, and this is just kind of a word of advice or warning, um, I love using um, concordances, I love using commentaries, uh, but if you do a word study and you open up Strong's Concordance and you can get it all online, it's free, it's great, it's wonderful, but what you've got to be careful of is that if you look it up and you say, you type in blessed, and it brings up the definition of blessed. It will give you multiple definitions. And it will say blessed, happy. Um, it will give you two or three. And I said it, it's best translated approved by God. What you always got to remember is context. It, it, it has to fit in with the, the context. And so while in the original language... It doesn't give you a definition of approved by God. If you take it and put it in the context of everything Jesus is saying, that's the meaning behind the word as Jesus used it. See, in their, their language, blessed meant happy. Blessed meant um, getting something from God. Money, uh, health, good crops. That went all the way back into their culture, even in their old, the history of the Jews. Abraham was blessed by God. David was blessed by God. But Jesus is bringing that word into a new context. And he's trying, he's, everything he's talking about in these chapters is what? How do you find approval with God? And so that's why I, I firmly believe, and I'm not alone in this, that it's best to, to see this word as he uses it in chapter 5 and throughout the rest of the chapters as having to do with God's approval. Because everything he's trying to point out is... Don't you want God's approval? 
And what did the Jews all live for? God's approval. Why did they try to keep the law? God's approval. Why did they do the sacrificial system to get back in a right relationship with God? They wanted God's approval. But here's the deal that we have to recognize and we have to remember is that we have God's approval already. If you're in Jesus Christ, if you've placed your faith in Him, you are, re are already approved by God. What more approval do you need? Why do you need the approval of men? See, if the Pharisees really believed that they were approved by God, why were they obsessed with the approval of men? Because they really didn't care about the approval of God. What they cared about is, what do you think about me? Remember? Flowing robes, seat at the banquet, everybody treats you with respect, everybody honors you when you walk into the room. Hey, if that's what you want, Jesus says, you'll get it. But you're not going to get approval from God. Because you don't really know God. And you're not wanting God's approval, you're wanting man's approval. See, when he says you're going to get a reward from God, I hear that and I, my ears perk up because I love rewards. You know, I, I love to get stuff. When I was a kid, I loved to get stuff. I just didn't get rewards very often. But I love to get rewards. And so we read that and we think, well, oh gosh, if I, if I do these things, I'll get a reward. His emphasis, his point is, he's talking to people who already have the reward, the approval of God. And he says, you know what? Don't worry about what everybody else is doing. Don't worry about what they think about you. Don't live out your righteousness to get people to pat you on the back because you've already got the biggest pat in the back you're ever going to get. Approval by God. Eternal life. Forgiveness of sins. Redemption. Sanctification. Justification. You've got all of that because of what Jesus did for you. Why in the world are you so obsessed with what people think about you? So this idea of reward... If you go back and again look at the Beatitudes in chapter 5, Mary says, uh, uh, blessed are the meek, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are this, blessed are that, blessed are that. And then he, he lists all these rewards. There's those people who are approved by God, blessed by God, having come to faith in Jesus Christ. What? what? Theirs is the kingdom. They will be comforted. They will inherit the earth. They will be satisfied. They will receive mercy. They will see God. They will be called sons of God. Theirs is the kingdom already. And the reward in heaven is great. So you got to keep all these chapters tied together because he's saying, what? Your father who sees in secret will reward you. With what? A new bass boat? No. It's right there. Comfort. The earth. Satisfaction. Mercy. Son of God. And in heaven. See, it's not about getting more stuff from God. Um, I, th I think the whole uh, uh, doctrine of rewards that, it, that we sometimes uh, teach on, we, we do a disservice to because, again, I think it's our modern or just human concept of rewards. It means more stuff. I'm going to get more stuff. And I do believe the Bible teaches rewards. But if we're not careful, we get obsessed with more and we lose sight of the fact, what more do you need than heaven? What more do you need than forgiveness for all your sins and no condemnation and guess what? No death and no eternal suffering. Why, why do you need something bigger? Why do you need a bigger house in heaven? Or a, you know, 
I, I think the rewards, as I read them, as taught in the scriptures, the rewards that you get, any rewards that we receive when we stand before the Lord at the Bema Seat of Christ, and we, it's described that we're going to lay everything that we've ever done, having come to faith in Christ, to the moment He returns or we die, and we lay all these things at His feet, He's going to set fire to them. Literally, I don't know. But whatever is left over is your reward. And guess what the scriptures seem to teach? That everything and everyone is going to take those and give them to God. Give them to Christ. Why? Because the only thing that's going to last that burning, that judgment, this is really the only judgment we go through is our judgment of our works that we've done since coming to Christ. Anything left over is going to be stuff that Jesus Christ did in us and through us and for us and we didn't really have much to do with it. And we'll be able to give it back to him because we'll realize, man, that was you. I didn't do that. And so this idea of rewards gets skewed by us just simply because we love the idea of rewards and getting more stuff. But Jesus is trying to get them to understand, you're working so hard to try to get God's approval. And I'm telling you, I have come to change the way that whole system works because it doesn't work according to the law. The law was never meant to get you into heaven. So it goes back to this idea of man-made versus what? Spirit-produced righteousness. Don't lean on your own righteousness. You know, don't practice your righteousness out in front of people so you get rewards. And I think that's why he uses that term, your righteousness. See, I have my righteousness and you have your righteousness. I have things I do that I think make me look righteous. And I've perfected them. Um, I, I think I'm good at them. And I'll do them. And, and, and I know I'll get the result I'm looking for. People go, man, that, that's really, phew, man, that's righteous. That's really good. That's, that's, man. And God looks down and he goes, not impressed. It's not righteousness as far as I'm concerned. They liked it though. So if you want to make them happy, keep doing it. But it's not doing anything for me. And guess what? It ain't doing anything for you. I'm doing it to impress others. And it may boost my ego. It may, it, it's like if you, you um, I'm trying to think of a good example of this. But if you get up and you know your kids are going to get up in 10 minutes and you hurry up and get your Bible out and you sit down and you open it up and you act like you're reading it. So they can see you reading your Bible. And your kids go, man, dad, dad, man, he's such a spiritual giant. They don't know that you just opened it, and then as soon as they walk out, you're going to close it. But it's an act of righteousness. It looks good, and they can brag and go, man, my dad's always, every time I get up, my dad's in the Word. They just don't know it lasts for five minutes. That's kind of what he's talking about. This idea of your righteousness. Don't practice your righteousness in front of people to be seen by them and rewarded by them. See, your motivation should never be recognition and what every one of us in this room struggle with. Being motivated by recognition. Yeah, but I want to be seen. I want somebody to know. I used this example on Tuesday night uh, with the guys out on the West Campus and um, my wife is a giver. I hate it. Because she loves to give. But she gives my stuff. You know, she, she gives my money. She gives, you know, she likes to give. And I, I'm not a giver. I'm, I, I'll just tell you, if you need something, don't come to me. 
Um, I'll pray for you and pray somebody give it to you, but it ain't coming from me. Um, and, and it drives me crazy because my wife will come to me and she'll say, I want to give to so-and-so. I'm like, why? Well, because they have a need. Well, can't somebody else help them? Well, no, I want to help them. Oh, how much do you want to help them? That's, that for me, that's always the key. How much? And she'll tell me, and it's never what I, you know, well, that, oh, how much in need are they? And she'll tell me, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll say, okay, well, okay, well, we'll write them a check. No, 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 I, 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 just, I don't want them to know. Why? And it, it starts coming out. She said, well, I, I don't want them to know. I, 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 don't, I don't want them to know. We, I just want to give. I feel like God wants me to give. I'm like, yeah, but we, don't you want them to know that we, we're the ones that gave it to them? And my, boy, my pride starts coming out. I'm like, if I'm going to write a check to these idiots, you know, I, I want some thanks and I want some praise. And she'll never let me do it. And she's right. It's this idea, do you want reward? Do you want people to know, oh, man, you gave us that money? Yeah, I did. I didn't want to, but I did. Um, it would have been half as much by my wife. Yeah, she's, yeah, thank her. No, wait, go ahead and thank me. Yeah. See, it's, it's a dangerous place for us to go, and I think that's why Jesus is driving it home. This idea of man-pleasing and praise-seeking is not the kind of righteousness we need to be pursuing because it will not get approval from God. You'll get approval from men, and, and, and you'll get praise from men, but it's not going to get approval from God. Because here's the deal, we already said it, you've already got his approval. Why are you obsessed with their approval? And I think the answer to that question, if we're honest, is because I don't feel approved by God. I don't feel like God's happy with me. Well, here's the reality. The problem lies not with God, it lies with you. Because you don't understand what he's done for you already. You don't appreciate what he's done for you already. The death of his son. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He proved his love for us by sending his son to the cross. And yet we're still looking for more approval. And since we can't seem to get it from him, you know what I've learned over the years? It's a whole lot easier to get it from you. It's a whole lot easier to get approval from people than it is, I think, from God. But I've already got his approval. That's the saddest part of this whole thing. So he tells them, you want reward, you're going to get reward, but it's going to be horizontal completely, earthly and temporal. You'll get it from them, but you're not going to get it from me. And, and the sad thing is, for believers, because we already have it, we lose sight of the joy and the incredible gift of all, all we've already been given. And that's why I think Paul and the prophets and so many of the Old Testament and New Testament characters really didn't care what people thought. Do you think Paul cared what anybody thought about him? I mean, the guy was willing to get stoned. He was willing to get chased out of town on a rail. He was, you know, he, he didn't care what people thought. What did he care about? I care what Jesus thinks. I care what God thinks. And oh, what an incredible place this would be if we all had that same attitude. I care about what he thinks. I really don't care about what you think. And I'm not telling you to go be a jerk to everybody. I'm just telling you to don't be afraid of what people are going to say and don't always be on, the, uh, on a vendetta to get them to think highly of you. Because guess what? Jesus said the world is going to hate you. It hated me. They're going to hate you. 
Worry about what I think about you more than you worry about what others think about you. So he's got these three things he deals with, almsgiving, prayer, and fasting. And I think the reason he uses these three things are because they were pretty popular. They were pretty uh, normal in their day and age. We don't do a lot of fasting in our day and age. They did because it was part of their system. And all of them were done to be recognized. So Jesus, is in his inimitable way, he's, he's like, okay, I'm going to pick these three things that you all tend to do, and you all tend to do them for the wrong reason. And I'm going to talk about those three things. He's not saying these three, three things are wrong. It goes back to motivation. If your motivation is recognition, it ain't righteousness. And it will get you no reward. So all these things are visible, demonstrable. They were done to be seen for the most part. So almsgiving, what is it? It's covered in verses 2 through 4. We've already read it. It's giving to the needy as an act of mercy. It's what my wife likes to do. Giving to the needy as an act of mercy. Uh, she she uh, runs a 501c3, do, does work in uh, Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. And she works with um, needy families, mostly women and children. And... Uh, Part of, of her foundation's deal is that uh, she gets people to support families uh, on a monthly basis to help provide them with food and education for their children and, and uh, they share the gospel with them. And well, you know, my wife runs the foundation and I can't tell you how many of these families we've adopted. And I'm like, oh, but you run the foundation. Get somebody else to adopt them. But my wife just sees more and more families, and she's just like, well, that family needs adoption, and they haven't been adopted, and I'm going to adopt them. So why? Because she's got this passion to meet the needs of these people out of mercy. Okay? That's what almsgiving is. And one of the ways you could think about it, this is not a word, but it is as of tonight, compassionateness. Compassionateness. It's living out your compassion in such a way that you see a need, you meet it. And you don't do it to get recognized. You don't do it so people go, wow, what a, what a compassionate guy. No, you do it out of mercy. But anyone who thinks they're righteous because they give misses the point. That's what Jesus is trying to tell you. So when it comes to this idea of almsgiving, if you give to the needy, in order to be noticed by everybody else and you want them to know how much you gave, that's not righteousness. Well, it is. It's just the wrong kind of righteousness. That's your righteousness. And you will get recognition. You just won't get the right kind of recognition. You won't get recognition from God. There's no brownie points. There's no A pluses on your report card from God on that kind of righteousness because it's the wrong kind. Giving to get recognition is not righteousness at all. Well, what about prayer? We're a little bit more familiar with prayer, but prayer is usually something that comes hard for us. Prayer was an active part of their lifestyle. They prayed a lot. They prayed in the synagogue. They prayed at home. They had wrote prayers. They had written prayers. They had memorized prayers. But prayer then, as it is now, is nothing more than communication with God. You talking to God and God talking to you. The sad part about many of our prayer lives is that we just never hear from God. Because we're so busy talking, we never listen. And sometimes God wants to speak to us, and God wants us to hear, and God wants us to shut up long enough to hear what he has to say. But it's communication. 
And so Jesus is not condemning public prayer because the context in this verse is what? Public prayer. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues, at the street corners. Why? So they may be seen. It's, his description is of public prayer. And public prayer was very attractive to these people. And even the poorer people, the, the common person, when they heard a Pharisee pray, they were blown away with their words, their eloquence, the length, the voice. You ever, you ever uh, been in a group, maybe it's happened around your tables, don't point at the guy if he does it, but if you've ever been praying with a group of people and there's always one guy or one woman who you've had this conversation with for 15 minutes and when it comes to pray, their voice changes. You know, if it's a guy, suddenly his voice gets really deep and he gets very somber and he starts speaking in the king's English. And you're like, what? Did you just get possessed? What, what, what happened? And they start praying in this language that you don't even understand. I'm not talking tongues. It's just like old English. Thee and thou and hither come Lord Jesus. And you're like, isn't he from East Texas? What? what? <laughs> this idea of trying to impress people with your prayers is really, really dangerous. And I know there's guys sitting out here tonight that if, if I said, okay, I want everybody at the table. I want you to pray and everybody's going to pray out loud around the table. Some of you would just, you'd be all over it and you'd take up the entire time. And nobody else would get to pray because you love to pray out loud. And then there'd be at least one guy, maybe two, who are just like, oh, just keep praying. I don't want to pray. I don't, I don't want to pray out loud. So he's, he's not condemning praying out loud. He, again, it's motivation for recognition. Why are you trying to do it? Prayer is meant to give God glory to give him honor, to give him adoration. That should be the reason we pray, whether it's in public or whether it's in private. It's also to get from God forgiveness, healing, guidance, direction. And I'll give you an example. This is, uh, um, I'm just going to be honest tonight because it's all I got. Um, every Sunday morning, the, the pastoral staff, the kind of the senior staff of the church, we meet at 8 o'clock here on this campus and we pray. And we pray for the services and we pray for the day. Now you can imagine what it's like to get a room full of pastors together to pray. You've got young pastors, you've got old pastors. You've got senior pastors, you've got not so senior pastors. And it comes time to pray. And here's, here's what, and I'm just going to be honest, what goes through my mind. Okay, we start to pray, and I'm thinking, okay, I got to pray. What am I going to pray about? I got to come up with something really good. I got to, I got to, I got to have. It just can't be something weak. It's got to be pretty strong. I got to. Okay, what, what's going on in the world? Okay, I got that. And then dead gamut, the next guy, he prays, he prays over that. And I'm like, God, I had that one. Oh, okay, wait. What? Okay, what else? So there's got to be something else. There's got to be some need, need within the church. Okay, and I'll come up with that. And then, and then, and then inevitably, every Sunday this happened, God says, just shut up. What? Shut up. Don't pray. What do you mean don't pray? You don't need to. Just talk to me. Yeah, but I need to pray because we're praying. And, you know, if I don't pray, it's just going to look weird. I got to pray. And it's like God says, no, just you're, you're wanting to pray for the wrong reason. You're wanting to impress people. You're wanting them to hear your prayer and how eloquent you are. Just shut up and pray to me. Well, I want to pray to you. I want to pray to them. I want, you know, because you're not going to pat me on the back. You're not going to say anything to me, but they might. They probably won't, but they might. 
See, guys, this is real stuff. This is, this is not New Testament 2,000 years ago Jewish people. This is us. This is 21st century Christians. We struggle with this. And if it's not giving, it's, it's prayer. If it's not fat, it's something in your life that you struggle with because you so desire something from man and you don't think about what you've already gotten from God. So he's, he's rejecting the idea of righteousness linked to public prayerfulness, wordiness. Don't use lots of words. Don't try to impress people. Just pray. You know, one of the things I appreciate about my dad when he was alive is that my dad was a prayer warrior. He loved to pray. And my dad sounded like God when he talked. And so when he prayed, he wasn't putting on anything. He just he had this deep, booming voice, and he would pray. And it was like you weren't in the room. I remember as a kid, we'd pray at dinner, and my dad would pray, and it's just like we just disappeared. He's talking to God. And it would hack me because he and God would talk for a really long time. And I wanted to eat, and he's still praying because he's, he didn't care about us. He's talking to God. He wasn't impressing us. And I, I always admired that about my dad. And I think that's what Jesus is trying to get us to understand is just, hey, go into your closet. Shut the door. Talk to me. And guess what? You'll get your reward. You got me. You got heaven. You got eternal life. You've got the Holy Spirit live within you. Don't worry about what people see and what people say and how they think about you. Well, the third one deals with is fasting. Time spent in complete dependence upon God. We know what fasting is, right? It's what we do to lose weight. Um, we stop eating. Um, but that's not what fasting was in this context. It may have involved not eating. It may have involved not drinking. But it was tied to religious um, events, festivals, and feasts. The Day of Atonement. There was fasting involved. And so fasting was a part of their culture. It was part of their religion. There were individual and corporate fasts. And they always had a moral reason. You know, if, if you fast to lose weight, that is not righteousness. It may be good health, but it's not righteousness. It's not going to impress God. This had to do with disciplining yourself so that you could spend time with God and concentrate on God. And it was usually associated with brokenness and repentance. I'm going to come before you. And what he talks about here is that if you do it to get noticed and you want people to see you, and you want people to notice you, and they would wear sackcloth, they would wear ashes, and people would go, you, you. if I walked around the church on Sunday morning in sackcloth and ashes, I would get attention. And, and what I'd want is people go, well, what's wrong? Why are you dressed like that? Why are you weeping? Why are you moaning? What's, what's going on? Why are you, what the, what's with the gnashing of teeth? Oh, well, I'm, I'm fasting. And I would want people to go, wow, how long have you been doing it? Oh, about an hour. You know, I'm starving. Um, see, that's not what this is about. This is, this is a different kind of fasting. And yet they had turned it into self-righteousness. Look at me. Look at me fast. Look at me do these wonderful things for God, but really to be seen by man. And he says, in all cases, you will have your reward. You'll get what you crave, the recognition of men, their approval, the pat on the back. You're just not going to get the reward you need. You're not going to get the approval and blessing of God. Because guess what? If you're a believer, you already have it. And if you're not a believer and you're doing all these things, you're never going to get what you're looking for. You're just going to get the praise of men and you'll never get approval of God. You'll never have that deep satisfaction of knowing that you have been forgiven of all your sins. 
So giving, not out of mercy, but merit. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. That's just a kind of a Hebraic way of saying it, it ought to be so secret this hand didn't even know the other hand's doing it. You, you keep it hidden. No room for recognition, no pride. Keep it concealed and you'll get the rewards you're looking for. Praying not to be heard by God, but by men. That's what they were doing. I want men to hear me, but no, you should be praying for God to hear you. So shut your door, get into a secret place, and God will hear you and he will reward you. The reward is what you already have, and you'll come to recognize that's enough. Fasting, they were doing it to seek the favor of men, but not of God. Wrong. Wrong kind of righteousness. They wanted to be thought of more, as more spiritual. And he says, keep it secret, keep it hidden, keep it concealed, and God will see it. See, like my wife, when she gives and they don't know, guess who knows? God does. That's the way it should be in all of these cases, in every area of our life. And then Jesus, and we're going to end with this, the Lord's Prayer. He gives us this example. And I've always wondered why the Lord's Prayer is where it is. And we usually take it out of its context and we just kind of deal with it by itself. But look at where it is. He's talking about beware of practicing your righteousness. Uh, beware of how you pray. And then he says, oh, and pray like this. And he's going to give them this example. It's a model for prayer. And I'm going to emphasize this really, really strongly tonight. It's a model for prayer. It is not a stand-in for your prayer life. Most of you guys, when I read it, could have quoted it. You know it. So at some point in your life, you probably memorized it. And there's nothing wrong with that. And there's nothing wrong with quoting this prayer. It's just not meant to be something you recite. It's a model. He says, pray then like this. So he's got in it some things we need to look at, some models to follow. And this is uh, from the blog that I wrote this summer from um, Sermon on the Mount, but this is what struck me when I was studying it this summer. Jesus would have us remember that prayer is not about us. It's first and foremost about God and our relationship with him as child to father. We are more than free to come to God with our needs, our wants, and even our desires, but we must attempt to bring those needs, those wants, and those desires where? Into alignment with his will. And I think that's the point of this prayer. He says, don't pray to get noticed, don't give to get noticed, don't fast to get noticed. Worry about what God thinks. Worry about the reward that God has for you. Don't worry about the rewards. Amen. And then he says, pray like this. Our Father in heaven. There's two things that jump out at this to me. Our Father, which is a, a picture of intimacy. And then he says, in heaven. That has to do with his divinity. You got to keep that in mind when you pray. When you come to God, don't be flippant. Don't be callous. Don't be overly close and personal. Hey, Dad. Hey, how's it going, buddy? I got some needs here. You know, could you hurry up? He's your father, but he's in heaven. You don't like your kids treating you with disrespect, treating you flippantly, treating you in a, in a callous or cold way. Neither does God. He's divine. I'm human. Guess what? He's eternal. I'm temporal. He's holy. I'm not. I still have a sin problem just like you do. And yet, what Jesus is saying, our Father who art in heaven, you, in spite of you, can come to him as Father. But don't treat him disrespectfully. Familiarity can breed contempt. You can get so close to God, you can feel so comfortable with God, you can become flippant with God. And that, my friends, is dangerous. 
God is God. God is divine. God is holy. And our sonship never should change his sovereignty. You're standing before the king. Treat him as such. Be glad that you have access into his presence. And the only reason you do is what? Because of what Jesus Christ has done. We read in Ephesians, because of Christ and our faith in him, we can now come boldly and confidently where? Into God's presence. You can come before the king. Remember we did the study of Esther? And Esther couldn't come before the king unless he did what? Held out his royal scepter. Guess what? You don't have to wait for God to hand out his scepter. He, he just says, come on in. You're my child. But treat him with respect. Treat him with honor. Treat him with dignity. Hebrews, let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. Just come on in. Go into your closet. Shut the door. Talk to God. Come into his presence, but do it with respect. He's your father in heaven. And then I love this phrase, hallowed be your name. Anybody know what hallowed means? Holy. Holy. It's an old English word. We don't use it much anymore. But he says, hallowed be your name. And what... what I think about is, why is he praying this? And why is he giving us this as a model? It, it literally means to separate from profane things and dedicate to God. And I, the best example I can think of what this looks like, and um, if in the tabernacle or the temple they had utensils. Let's say there's a basin and it was part of the cleansing process used by the priests in the temple. And that basin had been set apart for God's use. There was nothing unique about the basin. It wasn't made out of special materials. It was just a basin, but it had been set apart for God's use. Therefore, it was holy, set apart. Now, if one of the priests had a party that, at his house that weekend, and he walked in and goes, man, we need a punch bowl. I'll just use this basin and bring it back next week. What would he have done, or what would have happened to that basin? It would have gone from holy, set apart for God, to profane. Because he was using it for something it was not intended for. Well, here's the real kicker. Every time you use your body, your eyes, your hands, your mind, for something other than what God has destined you for, you profane your body. You become unholy, unset apart. That's why this idea of living in the world is so difficult for us is because we need to be set apart. We are seen as saints, as holy. And to hallow means to honor as holy. So why in the world does he say, God, hallowed holy be your name? Isn't his name already holy? What kind of a prayer is that? Hey God, be holy. Hey God, keep your name holy. I don't think God has a problem with that. So what's he trying to say? I am to treat God's name as holy. You are to treat God's name as holy. How do you do that? Not by not cussing, but by living in a holy way. Living as you are set apart. When you do, you keep his name holy. When you don't, you dishonor the name you represent. So Jesus is basically saying, Father, Father in heaven, holy be your name. I want your name to be holy and I want to live holy so that your name will be holy. 
And then again, this is something I wrote this summer. God will never do anything that will discredit or dishonor his own name. But as his children, we can do immeasurable harm to the character of God by the manner in which we conduct our lives on this planet. So see, when you're praying, if you take this as a model, which is what it is, I want God's name to be holy. How do I pull that off? By the way I live my life. By living as set apart, as different, as distinct. And then he says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I think we all get what this means. But what I get out of this is I spend way too much time in my prayer life telling God what I want. Instead of, it's not what I want, it's what you want. It's what you desire. It's your kingdom, not my kingdom. Because he says, your heavenly father already knows what you need before you ask him. Well, the, that leads to the, the question, then why, why pray at all? Because we're commanded to pray and it's communication. You know, if I went home to my wife and I said, honey, I told you I loved you when I married you. I'm not going to say it anymore. She'd slap me silly. She's compassionate. She's not an idiot. God wants you to talk to him. God wants you to have conversation. He knows what you need. So basically he's saying, you know, you can come tell me what you need. I already know what it is, but re really, I want you to, do you have any idea what I want for you? Do you have any idea what my desire is? It's not just telling God stuff you don't think he knows. It's sharing your heart. Not just information. So wanting his kingdom to be done, not yours. Wanting his will to be done. And so this is in your notes, but it's basically prayer should do these things. Realign your perspective. What's God want? One of the things, uh, when, I, when I was on the elder board years ago, you know, we, we uh, then, as we do now, we, every Sunday we ask you guys to... to turn in prayer requests, and those are compiled in a sheet, and we'll have a sheet, you know, three or four pages long of just front and back prayer requests. And I remember looking at that thing for the first time going, oh my gosh, that's a lot of prayer requests. I got to pray over those. And I started looking at them, and they ran the gamut from, you know, heal my dog and heal my son, or, you know, I've got cancer, I've got, I need a job, we're in financial trouble. And, and what I, I'd been reading through the, the prayers of, of Paul, and I realized that Paul very rarely prayed for specific needs. Somebody's health, he rarely prayed for, somebody, prayed for somebody's marriage to get healed, but he was always praying about their hearts. And what God shared with me, he said, Ken, you can pray for what they ask, but that's probably not what they need. So if somebody's praying for healing, I can pray for their healing alongside them, but I need to start thinking, what is it they really need? Because what if the healing doesn't come? They're going to need peace. They're going to need patience. They're going to need joy. They're going to need strength in the midst of this. But we just get stuck with what we think people need or what they think they need. It realigns our perspective. It refocuses our attention on what God thinks is important. It, it's a time to reveal sin to God, to confess, to refresh our commitment to him, saying, Lord, I, I haven't really been living the way I, I'm supposed to, but you know what? From this moment forward, I'm going to do, do more for you. I'm going to live more for you. I'm going to spend more time in your word. And it's also a time to ask for his help. We are the worst men about asking for help. We're the worst. Because we're just going to do it ourselves. And, and yet we've got the God of the universe and access to his throne room, come in, talk to him at any time and say, I need help. I need wisdom. I need strength. Prayer should stress his will, not yours, mine. Prayer should seek to know his will and not demand your own. When's the last time you've asked God, what is your will for me? What do you want me to do?
I know what I want to do. What do you want me to do? What's your will? Seek what God desires. Then he goes on, we're almost done. Give us this day our daily bread. Wanting God's will to be done should change what you ask for. What do you tend to ask God for when you pray? Stuff, money, health, nothing wrong with any of that, guys, but what do you really need? I love this from Thomas Constable. Daily bread refers to the necessities of life, not its luxuries. This is a prayer for our needs, not our greeds. The request is for God to supply our needs day by day. See, I can think about, you know, how am I going to get my last kid through college? How am I going to do this? How am I going to have enough money saved up to live on when, once I, they fire me from this job? And I, can, I, I get so far down the road, and he says, you know, just worry about your daily bread. Remember the story of the manna? When God brought the manna, the people are traveling through the wilderness and they're complaining about everything and he gives them manna and he says, take enough for today. If you take more, it's going to rot. What did they do? They hoarded. Because that's what we do. Well, I know what enough is. This is enough. And they'd eat what they could and the rest would rot and then they'd have to go get some more tomorrow. And it was always there. What do you worry about? Your needs or your greeds. Ask God to show you what your needs really are. I think that's what Jesus is trying to tell you. When you pray, say, God, what do I need? Don't say, here's what I want. What do I need? Ask the Spirit to help you pray within his will. And then forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. This is a tough one for all of us in the room. And it begs the question, weren't all our sins paid for on the cross? What kind of debts do I have? Well, you got debts every day because you sin every day. Why? Because you're a sinner and you need forgiveness. I sin every day. You sin every day. Sin creates this barrier between you and God. And forgiveness removes the barrier. Uh, Jonathan and I had to talk about this yesterday or maybe it was today, talking about, you know, do we need to even ask for forgiveness? If we already have it, why do we need to ask for it? Well, I think what the Bible teaches is you need to confess your sins. The forgiveness is already there, but you got to confess your sins. It's just like salvation is already there, but you got to accept it. The forgiveness has been paid for, done by Jesus Christ on the cross, but you've got to confess your sins. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive your sins, but you got to confess. That's a part of what prayer should be about. And it restores you in your relationship with God. And sin basically indebts us. When we confess, we get forgiveness. But here's the deal. He puts it in the context of forgiving others as well. I love God's forgiveness. I ask for it all the time. But I don't always want to give it to other people. But he says you have to. To refuse to forgive others shows open disregard for the forgiveness of God. Hey God, I want you to forgive me for this, but I'm not going to forgive him. And God goes, then why should I forgive you? I forgave you for a whole lot more than they did to you. See, it goes both ways. To refuse to forgive his sin, it's against the will of God for his children. Matthew 18, Jesus says, If another believer sins against you, go privately, point out the offense. If the other person listens and confesses it, you've won that person back. But some of us would rather hate them because it's more fun. Since God chose you to be holy people, he loves you. You must clothe yourselves with tenderhearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. You know what that means in the Greek? Forgive anyone who offends you. Anyone. Anyone. Neighbor, co-worker, the jerk next door, forgive them. Anyone who offends you, remember the Lord forgave you, you must forgive them. 
And then this, lead us not into temptation, guys. This is an interesting one to me as well. Is he suggesting that God tempts? No. Because it would go directly against what James says. No one can say God tempted me because God tempts no one. So what's he mean? What's the point? There's two kinds of temptation, guys. There's the temptation that leads to sin. There's the temptation to lust, and you do lust. But there's also the kind of temptation that is a trial. That's what he's talking about here. He's saying, God, I don't want to be tested. When you pray, God, help me not to fall into temptation, not to, to fail the trial that you bring into my life, because it's a test of your character. It's not. See, my biggest problem is I, I lust just like you lust, and I, I can cuss like a sailor if I want to, and I can get angry, and I can do all kinds of stuff like that. But the biggest test I fail is the test of my character. And, and Jesus says, you're going to get your character tested on a regular basis. And so he's basically saying, ask God to help you, to protect you, to lead you. No temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. This is not talking about lust, adultery. It's talking about the test of your character. Everybody gets their character tested. And what he's saying is, ask God to help you survive that. Lead us not into temptation, but what? Deliver us from evil. So I think Jesus is saying, remain aware of your dependence on God. You never grow out of it. You never escape it. God will never lead you into sin. He never will. But he will lead you into some dark places, some difficult days, some hard times. And you're basically saying, God, protect me from falling into sin as I live this life you've called me. I don't want to fail you. I need your help. Because left to my own devices, I will. So he says, to end it up, deliver us from evil. He's not only going to lead you, he's going to deliver you. He's going to keep you from committing evil as you follow his way. I love the 23rd Psalm. It starts, starts talking out about, you know, the um, green pastures, still waters. It's a wonderful scene. And it says, and he leads me through the valley of the shadow of death. We, we seem to forget that part. Shepherd leading, same shepherd, same staff, leads me into the green pasture, still waters, oh, and then the valley of death. See, when you follow Jesus, there will be mountain peaks and there will be valleys. There will be great days and there will be dark days. And you're praying that God keep me from committing evil. Keep me from sinning against you as I walk this journey. He will deliver you from evil. And I love what Jesus prayed in the garden the night he was betrayed. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. That should be your prayer every single day when your feet hit the floor. Lord, Lord, keep me from the evil one. Keep me from failing. Keep me from falling as I follow this path. And then finally, guys, he ends it all up with forgiveness again. Why? Because it's important. Do you know what the gospel is all about? Forgiveness. You take forgiveness out and there is no gospel. You have been forgiven of your sins. That's why Jesus goes right back to forgiveness. It's important. And that's the reason he came to the earth was to give you, provide for you, forgiveness of sins. And an unforgiving person, if you are unforgiving of other people, guess what? You don't fully understand. You don't fully appreciate the forgiveness you've received from God. You are treating it like dirt. When you can look at somebody else and say, I refuse to forgive you, and yet you've been forgiven by God. That's why Jesus goes back to it. If you forgive others their trespasses, guess what? God will forgive you. And I think what he's saying, it's the cart before the horse thing again. If you have been forgiven, you will be a forgiver. If you have received mercy, you will share mercy. If you have been shown grace, you will show grace. And if you don't, if you've refused to forgive, it is a sin. 
And here's the deal, guys. You can confess it till you're blue in the face, but you got to stop doing it. You got to stop not forgiving. You got to change your behavior when we need to forgive as we have been forgiven. And I love Peter says, Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Seven times? That sounds like a great number. And what does Jesus say? No, seven times, 70 times seven. Keep on forgiving. Because guess what? God's forgiveness for you is without limit. I love what somebody told me years ago. There's nothing I can do to make God love me more. There's nothing I will ever do that will make him love me less because I have his forgiveness. You can walk out of this door today and you can sin like the worst person that ever walked this planet and you will have the forgiveness of God if you confess it. Now that is not an encouragement you to go live your life in sin just because you think you can get free grace. But guys, we have forgiveness. Why won't we share it with others? So here's your questions. Why do you think we're so tempted to seek the recognition of men rather than the approval of God? Why is that so attractive to us? Secondly, when Jesus says that God will see you and reward you, what kind of reward do you think he has in mind? We've already kind of touched on that. And then which of the elements in Jesus' model prayer is missing from your prayer life? There's about five different things here. What's missing? Holiness of God's name, his will, his kingdom, and what are you going to do to change that in your prayer life? Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for these guys. Thank you for their patience. Lord, I pray that tonight as they talk around the tables that as usual it would be rich, open, honest, uh, gracious, that everybody would allow each other to share and even struggle with their answers. Lord, we are works in process. We don't have it all together. We are not what we need to be other than forgiven. But I pray that we would walk out of this room with a greater desire to live not the righteousness of men, not our righteousness to get the approval of men, but we would live your righteousness because we've already gotten your approval through Jesus Christ. And I pray this in his holy name. Amen. Have fun, guys.